If you haven't already done so, please find your Bible and open them to the book of 2 Peter, please. 2 Peter chapter 2. I think you'll find it in that book rack Bible on page 1895. There's an outline in your bulletin if you would like to take notes or follow along that way as well. We also have discussion, thought, reflection questions that are posted on our website that go along with this message if you meet with some folks or in a community and would like to chop this up a little bit. I'm going to tell you from the start today, we're going to be in some deep water scripture and that's always good. Um, There's going to be things here that might sound really countercultural, and that's also good. Because we come to the timeless word of God and it never changes and we have the opportunity to sit before it and let it judge our lives as opposed to so often the way we think. We judge what the scripture says. No, it's the other way around. So as a little bit of a background, we've been in this book now. This is our fourth Sunday. We've got one more to go. Uh, This is a book that is a series of reminders. We saw that in chapter three. We'll see it actually again next week. uh, that, That... Peter is wanting to remind his readers of some really critical things about what it means to live a godly life. And I find my life, I need to be reminded all the time. So we're calling this series Memos from Heaven because these are things that God wants us to think about all the time. He wants us to resonate with these things. And what this book has been showing us so far, as a little recap, see if you can follow along with me, uh, that first of all, God's memo to us is that he gives. And what does he give to us? But he gives a faith that is three things, a faith that is precious, a faith that is productive, and a faith that must be proven authentic. This is the faith that he gives to us, and he has given us all things according, pertaining to life and godliness, as it tells us there in verse three of chapter one, and uh, so that's an amazing thing. That's a great reminder every day. Secondly, we saw that God not only gives, but he speaks, and what we mean by he speaks, he gives to us his word, and we should pay attention to it. And why should we pay attention to it? Because it, number one, it establishes us in the truth. It reveals the person of Jesus Christ, number two. And number three, it comes from him. It's divinely inspired. This is not the word of man, but it's the word of God. And last time we saw that not only does God give and God speaks, but he also warns. And he warns about false teachers, false prophets, and all the carnage that they bring. And last week we said that uh, in this very powerful passage, the whole chapter, chapter 2, and today we're looking at a little segment within it. Remember last week I said this is sort of a a 2-4-1 kind of opportunity. So we're looking at a section within this broader section of false teachers, false prophets, and all the carnage that false teaching produces in the world And we said last week that when God warns, he warns us about false teachers' whereabouts, their ways, their words, their weaknesses, and finally their coming woe, the fact that God is going to judge. So today, we're going to step back and we're going to see one more memo. God gives, God speaks, God warns. Today, we're going to look at God protects. And I want you to see this as we look through this text today uh, in verses 4 through 10a of chapter 2. And so follow along in this beautiful deep water text. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others, If he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly, 
And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. This is especially true for those who follow the corrupt desire of the sinful nature and despise authorities. Amen. <laughs> now that's, that's a deep water text. There's questions in there. There's things you're going, what and huh? And you're going to want to f- try to figure all this out. Well, we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to guide us this morning. And let's just thank the Lord for his precious word as we dive into this text. Can we? Lord Jesus, thank you that this is your word and this is about you and it's about us and it's about this world. So Lord, you brought us all together to hear this this morning and I pray that you will take over, Lord, that these words will be your words that I speak and that you will hide me behind the cross and Lord, that the preaching won't interfere with the text. I pray, God, for power and for life transformation and I pray this in Jesus' name and everyone said All right, so I see two major movements in this text, two big ideas that I want to kind of massage throughout the the message this morning. And if you're taking notes, the first one is this. If you've ever thought that false teachers and the teaching that they espouse are just getting away with it, if you've ever thought that, that all the evil that is in the world because of false teaching is are people that are just getting away with it, I want you to think again. That's what Peter's saying here. He's saying if you think that everyone is just getting away with everything, it's time to stop and think again. I don't know what you think is the biggest threat to the world today. Some of us think of it secular idolatries, ideologies, cultural values, humanism, secularism, existential existentialism, you could fill in the blank of whatever else it is, but I would suggest to you that the greatest threat to our world really is false religion. It's putting our faith and trust in lies, and sometimes they're couched in religious ideas, and sometimes they're just couched in philosophies that people follow. I want you to notice in this text this morning, and I don't know if you saw this, but this is one incredibly long sentence. Did you see that? Some of you English majors out there? In the Greek language, this is one of the longest sentences that we have in the New Testament. And it's a conditional statement. It starts with if, and it's actually repeated five more times, if, 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 and then it says then. And so we're going to focus this morning on the if-then condition. And that's why Peter says, look, if you think that people are just getting away with murder literally in the world, we need to think again. God sees all this, and one day, God is going to judge all this. In fact, if you're taking notes, here's what God wants us to know. God knows how to judge, and he will. Now, that sounds really simple, and I know most of us kind of get that, but the reality is is that we're not so good as evangelicals to think about the judgment of God. And there's good reason for that, because we know that we have passed out of judgment, and we are into Uh, we are into the saving work of Jesus Christ. Once we place faith in Jesus, we cross over from death to life. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And everyone who has no condemnation says, 
Okay, there's a few of us that say amen to the fact that we're no longer under condemnation. And so we're not so good at at reflecting on the judgment of God. But this passage calls for us to do that. The if condition in this passage is constantly calling the reader back to what has happened in the past. These are all precedent. If you were a lawyer, you'd be using this as argument of precedent. Don't think that the world is getting away with anything because by precedent, God has stepped in in the past and on that basis, God is going to step in in the future. In fact, Paul says in Acts 17, remember when he's in Athens on Mars Hill and he preaches this amazing sermon and he says, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. That's Acts 17, 31. God wants us to know that there is an appointed time coming. We know that God is going to judge this world, but we know that in Christ, that judgment has actually been stilled or it's been, it's been we, it's, we've crossed over. We've, that judgment has passed over us, which we'll see at the end of our sermon this morning. Now, a few examples that bring some reminders to all of this. First of all, look back now to the text. In verse three, at the end of verse three, Peter writes, he says, their condemnation, speaking of false teachers and all that they espouse, their condemnation has long been hanging over them and their destruction has not been sleeping. So right here, a lot of us think, okay, it's not happening, it's never happening, it's never going to happen. And Peter says, no, that's not true. The condemnation on all of what God is going to judge in this world is still coming. It's, there's, there's a coming judgment that we need to be aware of. And in verse four, he goes on to say some examples. And he's gonna give us three examples. They come, I believe, out of the book of Genesis. And uh, we'll, we'll look at them in a moment. The first one comes to this idea of God not sparing angels who sinned against him or rebelled against him. We see that in verse four. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that God sent these angels to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. Uh, This is a text that there's been great debate over among many scholars, and what is this dealing with? Let me give you a couple of primary ideas, and we'll kind of zero in on what I think is going on here. The first one could be just the broad expression of God judging the angels that rebelled. And you remember, if you know your Bibles, that in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14, we have poetic but real uh, uh, polemics against uh, Satan, who was at one time the highest angel of God. His name was Lucifer, star of the morning, the most beautiful in appearance, the most grandiose, the most glorious of all the angels. Lucifer decided one day to rebel against Almighty God, and he brings a third of the angelic host, and don't ask me how many that is, please. (laughs) People say, how many is a third? I don't know. We just know it's a third, because the Bible says a third of them, along with Lucifer, were cast out and away from, from the Father. The rebellion was squashed. And you know, one thing you learn from Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 is you don't mess with God, okay? You just don't do that. Even if you're the highest archangel. Why? Because God is judge. God is sovereign. God is ruler over all things. Who are any of us? Think of the pride and the hubris that some of us have thinking that we could match up against God. We could do dukes with God. We, you know, I've got to have a, I've got to have a conversation with God, some people say, you know. They're going to kind of match. No, listen, God is sovereign. We come before him humbly. 
We come before realizing he could squash us like a bug, but thankfully, through the grace and mercy expended and extolled or given to us through the life of his son, Jesus Christ, we pass out of judgment and into the light of life through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. So this could very well just be talking about the general sense of, of the angels that rebelled. It could also refer to a very uh, interesting and somewhat um, uh, curious passage from the book of Genesis. And if you want to hold your place in 2 Peter, because we'll be right back there. But go back to Genesis chapter 6, and I'll show you where this comes from. This is where God is deciding he's going to do away with the world as, as it was. After he had created Adam and Eve and in the garden, and then they had rebelled, and generations from Adam came and and went, and down the road the history continued. And we find in verse, well, let's just begin in verse 1 of chapter 6. When men began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they married any of them as they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not contend with man forever, for he is mortal. His days will be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of men and had children by them. They were the heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. The Lord was grieved that he had made man on the earth and his heart was filled with pain. So the Lord said, I will wipe mankind whom I have created from the face of the earth, men and animals, creatures that move along the ground, birds of the air, for I have grieved that I have made them, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, we'll come to that in a moment. All right, let me take you back to verse four. Who are the Nephilim? (laughs) We don't know. We really don't. I mean, there's a lot of theories espoused here. Some believe that the Nephilim were actually demonic spirits that cohabitated with human beings producing a wicked offspring. And there's argument for that because the word sons of God there usually refers to an angelic being, the sons of God in this reference anyway. I think more accurate and more plausible is the fact that there were demonic spirits who in the wicked time of Noah's day actually possessed a people, the Nephilim, and they, in their relations with women, had children, and the wickedness was so great among these basically demon-possessed people that the wickedness just went up and up and up and up to the point where God said, this is it. Now, we... We think that the world we're living in is, is terrible in many ways, and it is. There's many injustices, many terrible things going on around the world. I have a hunch based on Genesis 6 that the world then somehow was even more decadent and depraved than what we understand it to be now. Maybe, I don't know, conjecture, have it as you would. But the point I'm trying to make is that I think what's happening here is that these are demonic spirits possessing human beings and then in their offspring, creating such an incredible amount of wickedness that God just said, I'm going to put a stop to it all. And that's what he did. So we've got this first little picture here, and there's a lot more we could say on there, and maybe you have your idea. But let's go back to Second Peter and finish this thought out, because I know you've still got questions about this text. Wait a minute. How did God send angels to hell 
putting them in gloomy dungeons. What? Well, some of your Bibles, maybe yours does, my Bible has a little footnote next to hell there, and mine says Tartaros. Does that what your Bible says? Uh, not tartar sauce, <laughs> Tartaros. Now, that's a Greek word that literally means lower parts. And could it be that here in the biblical text, we've got a picture of the fact that all, of all the rebelling angels, there were some that were incarcerated in a place called Tartaros, where others have been let and, and continue to be free, or maybe in times are placed in that place called Tartaros. So we've got free demonic spirits, and we've got incarcerated demonic spirits. And that seems to make sense when we come to the gospel record. For example, in both Matthew 8 and Luke chapter 8, where Jesus comes into this little region known as the Gadarenes, and you remember there's some demon-possessed people that come out to meet him, and they, they cry out, these demons cry out, what do you want with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before the appointed time? Whoa, demons know about an appointed time. Luke 8, in the same uh, context, the same story, but from Luke's version, Luke says the demonic voices went on to say, please don't send us into the abyss, which New Testament writers kind of link with Tartaros, the lower places, a place of uh, incarceration. And they're begging Jesus not to be sent there. Why? Well, I guess they want to continue to have some reign and freedom, and you can look at that text, and Jesus actually sends them into a herd of swine, a herd of pigs, and they run down the mountainside and into the, into the you know, Sea of Galilee there and drown, and then all the townspeople say to Jesus, get out of here. That's <laughs> a crazy story, and the, one of the reasons why Jesus sent the demons into the pigs was because his people, the Jewish people living in that region, should have had nothing to do with swine at that point. So Jesus is kind of taking care of two problems with one issue there. I don't know. That's the way I look at that text. But the point is, the word abyss there seems to point out that these demons knew about this, this place of incarceration. So maybe that's what Peter is referring to here. He's talking about uh, God sending these demonic spirits, these rebelling angels into hell. Okay, well, the, the point here, and by the way, one more little side. We are going down some tangents this morning. But I, I hear sometimes people talk about hell in such cavalier ways. Well, first of all, we use the expression, what the, and we say the word. And it seems like people have no clue of what they're really talking about. If they really understood what hell was, they wouldn't use it in such a flippant way. And I know some people that think, I've had people tell me this, oh, I don't care if I go to hell, all my friends are going to be there anyway. <laughs> I've had people tell me that. And they'll say things like, you know, what do I have to fear about Satan? He's the ringleader. He's going to be the party host in hell. I, I've had people literally tell me that. Well, they haven't read their Bibles because Matthew 25, 41, in the story where Jesus uses the sheep and the goats as an illustration of God separating the righteous from the unrighteous, he says to them in that passage, depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, Jesus was saying Hell was not created for people. Unfortunately, people will be there. Hell was created for Satan and his demons. Hell is not, Satan is not the ringleader of hell. He's not the host of hell. He's not walking around having a great time hosting the party. It's a place of eternal damnation and punishment. And God has created that for those who reject his promise of life. I know these are hard topics. I told you at the top, this was countercultural. Nobody likes to hear this. But aren't you glad we have the scriptures? 
Aren't you glad that we love every word in the Bible and even when we don't understand it in its entirety, we get the gist, we sense what's going on and what Peter's saying is here, there is precedent for the coming judgment. Look back and see what God did among the rebelling angels. Number two, he says, and look back and see what God did at the flood. God did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people. By the way, here in verse 5, if you're in Second Peter, that little word ungodly, flood on its ungodly people, that word ungodly literally translates no time for God. The description of ungodliness isn't all the stuff we do. It's the mindset of no room for God. I got this, I got that, I got all these things I'm going after in my life. Oh, you know, God is good for you, but leave God out of this for me because I just don't have time. There's a ton of people living their lives today who don't really sense in their spirit that they're really against God. They just don't have time for God. That's the root of ungodliness. It's edging God out. I like what somebody said. Ego is an acronym for edging God out. Everything is, is, is this without God in my life. No room for God. And God did not spare the ancient world. He brought the flood on its ungodly people. Those people back in that day who just continued to say, no room for God, no room for God, God said, I'm going to destroy the planet. And he, he allowed Noah and seven others to come through the waters, which we'll see in a minute. By the way, if you're if just somewhere in your notes, you ought to write down, wherever you see judgment of God, you also see the deliverance of God. Because God loves those two parallel lines, judgment and deliverance, judgment and deliverance. That's why if you think that people are just getting away with anything that they want to do in this world, you need to think again because nobody's getting away with anything. God is going to judge, God is judging, God has judged, and God will judge someday all things in the world that are, that are against him and against his plans and purposes. And he precedentially shows us this with the picture of what happened in Noah's day. By the way, Peter talks a lot about the flood. He talks about it in chapter 3, verse 6, right here in our text. By these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. In chapter uh, 3 of 1 Peter, he talks about how we are saved through baptism. Watch this. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, not water baptism, but through the baptism of a clean conscience appealing to God, Peter says. Just like the symbol of, and Peter explains in 1 Peter three eighteen and following, just like Noah and his family came through the waters of judgment to a safe place. Baptism is a beautiful picture of God's deliverance. Have you been baptized? As a Christ follower, baptism is a public declaration of your deliverance that God's judgment has fallen over your life on Jesus and because of believing on Jesus you escape that judgment and you are delivered precedentially not only through angels that rebelled not only through the flood but also through verse 6 of 2nd Peter chapter 2 condemning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes Ooh, wow what's all this about Good old Sodom and Gomorrah. Anyone remember that's those two cities? Genesis chapter 13. Lot, remember who was a relative, a nephew of Abraham, had a choice. Abraham gave him a choice. Look, we're not getting along here. We have too many people, too much crowd, too much livestock. We need to separate ways. Lot, I'm going to give you the choice. Where do you want to go? And Lot looks and he sees the area of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he chose that. 
Now, why did Lot choose Sodom and Gomorrah? What was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? Let me tell you what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah, that whole region was a fertile, rich environment, great economy. That's where if you, you know, if you made it good, if you made it big, that's where you got your summer home. Sodom and Gomorrah. And oh yes, the place was rife with wickedness and idolatry too. But boy, it was an economy that was booming. It was a place where the rich go to get richer. It was a place where all the promises and everything was clicking. And Lot says, give me that. He went purposefully knowing that he was putting his family into a place of decadence and depravity. But he wanted that place. Not necessarily because of all the depravity and all the junk. He knew that it was the bastion of economy. He wanted to thrive. Boy, there's a lot of that going on in our world today. And I find it interesting, we'll get to this at the end of the message, if we have time, pray that we have time, that Lot was distressed in his own spirit about being there too. Just like some of us are too. We, you know, we look at our world and we look at where we are, the richest, most economical, play, the, the best economy, the best of everything in our world, and probably one of the most decadent places in all of the world to live, right here, right here. And I wonder sometimes if our spirit is as disturbed as, as Lot's spirit was, apparently. I would love to unpack that a little bit more. We don't know if Lot was disturbed because he knew he shouldn't be there or if he really wanted to be there and actually longed to have more of what that society brought to him. I don't know. We don't know. We'll look at that just a little bit at the end. But the point is, this, this place was so wicked. You remember in Genesis 19, God sent angels, two angels to the city of Sodom to destroy the city because of all of its wickedness. And so wicked was the city that the men of the city gathered and tried to rape these men. They, tr- they thought they were men, but they were angels. They must have been very handsome in appearance or whatever. They were attracted. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just, it's interesting that these, the whole city square was filled with people lustily wanting these men and Lot takes them into his home to protect them, and they're literally trying to break down the, the, the house until the angels say, okay, we'll put a stop to this, and he blind, they blind everybody. I mean, just supernatural, crazy stuff. And the sin of Sodom, not just homosexuality, but all kinds of sexuality, and every other kinds of sin, which we see rampant in our culture too. We're living in the same place, same time, same not the same time, same place, same dimension as we find here in Genesis chapter 13 through 19. And so Peter says, wait a minute, God did something in a place called Sodom. And by the way, some of you that are kind of, you have this little wary look on you like, come on, really, did all, what really? Because you know God sent judgment, a fiery judgment on this area. And to this day, and by the way, when you go to that region of the world, uh, archaeologists, along with all their other historical works, always have a Bible with them. Because the Bible has proven over and over that what it says speaks of what was true. This is not, you know, we're not like reading an account of something of civilizations that never existed. Or places that never existed. So, if you visit Sodom today, the area where Sodom was, I I would hazard a guess that you would not want to get a summer home there now. Because nothing grows there. It's all volcanic ash and sulfur. It's like the place was torched and burned. Oh, really? Read Genesis 19. 
That's what happened. There's nothing there. Nobody wants to be there. There's just little roads that go through it. I think it's interesting um, because here in precedent, God says, don't forget, I brought judgment upon the angels that rebelled. I brought judgment on a world that rebelled. I even brought judgment to a locale that rebelled. Judgment is part of what I do. And it's something that I do with absolute precision and timing. So if you're taking notes, you might want to write this down. As surely as God has judged evil and rebellion in the past, he will also do so in the future. There's judgment day coming. (laughs) And this makes all the sweeter the gospel. Because we know that even though the judgment of God has already come, by pouring God's wrath out on Jesus for our sins, there is still an accounting that is coming. I remember the story that circulated last, well, it's, it's a fairly old illustration, but I believe it's a true illustration where there was a, a farmer in the Midwest who, who sort of spurned this idea of you know, being in church with God's people on Sunday. I mean, he was a farmer. He had stuff to do. And he was not an atheist, but he was an agnostic. So he wrote a letter to the, to the local newspaper saying this to the ascent, to, in, the, in essence. I plowed my fields on Sundays. I weeded my fields on Sundays. I planted my fields on Sundays. I kept the soil and turned the soil on Sundays. I reaped the harvest on Sundays. And this past October was the greatest harvest I've ever had. And he wrote to his Christian editor friend, can you explain this? And the Christian editor just wrote back and said, God doesn't always settle his accounts in October. (laughs) Think about that. Some of us, and the book of Ecclesiastes chapter eight says, because the sentence is not quickly carried out, the evil take that to heart and they think they can keep getting away with stuff. This is kind of like the the eternal and the more, you know, uh, I said last week in jest, you know, my mom's saying, wait until your father comes home kind of statement. There's a time that's coming, and it's maybe not right now. But that should not make us think that God is slow in judgment. In fact, Peter's going to tell us, God is not slow in his promise, but he is patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's what we'll look at in the last message of this series. So, God is not slow for slow sake. He's, he's patient. And as surely as God has judged evil and rebellion in the past, he will do so in the future. So that's the first movement. And now we come to the second movement, and it's a more personal movement. And this is what we find in verses 5, 7, and 8, and 9. That if you ever think that you might be going under because of the evil in the world, Peter says, here's a reminder. God protects. You need to think again. No matter how terrible the world is, here's what we know about God. God knows how to care for his people, and he will. Just like God knows how to judge the wicked, he knows how to care for you. He knows what you need. He knows what you're going through. Can I remind you again of this conditional statement? If, verse four, if, verse five, if, 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 and verse nine now. Look at verse nine, everyone together. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men or women from trials. I'm so grateful for that. The precedent goes both ways. In judgment, 
but also in care. And the two examples are cited. Number one, the example of Noah. God brought Noah and his family through the flood. Now, we looked at this a moment ago, but I want to remind you. Here, Peter calls him a preacher of righteousness. If you look at the Genesis account, you don't see Noah preaching to anybody. There's no record of Noah preaching. Now, maybe he did. I mean, can you imagine? How long did it take him to build the ark? Anyone know? 120 years. Can you imagine? He probably got some good opportunities to preach during that time. I mean, you know, you've seen the modern movies, Evan Almighty, or is it Evan Almighty? I don't know. The, is that it? You know, kind of the depiction of modern day rendition of here's a guy who hears from God and, and he's building an ark. And you can imagine coming people, what are you building? Well, I'm building this ark. Well, why? Because there's going to be a flood on the earth. Oh, yeah, right. You know, just a lot of hazing, a lot of mocking going on. 120 years. I would have gotten really tired, I think, of doing that. Noah was a man of perseverance and he kept at it. But the beautiful thing about Noah's story is not how righteous Noah was. It was a God of righteousness that decided to pluck Noah because Noah was a man that believed God. And that's what Hebrews 11 says about him. It wasn't that he was any better than anyone else. He believed God. He trusted God. You and I can be the same kind of people. We can trust and believe God. And in doing so, we're going to take hazing, we're going to take some shots, but, but we hang in there and we realize that, that it's not our righteousness, but it's God's faithfulness that gets us through. The same is true about Lot. And here's where I told you I hope we have a little bit of time and we've just got a minute or two. Listen to this. God rescued Lot when he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And if you know Lot, if you see Lot, if you read Lot in Genesis 13 through 19, you don't get the sense that Lot was this paragon of spirituality. And in fact, even when the chips are down, you see Lot kind of hesitating. Chapter 19 of Genesis, the angels taking him out of the city and Lot hesitating as they're pulling him out. And Lot's wife actually turning around and not wanting to go. And she becomes, according to Genesis 19, a pillar of salt. Uh, She's made into the actual fabric of what God did to that land. And I know that's a a weird story and it sounds highfalutin. But if you doubt it, don't forget that Jesus, whenever he talked about Sodom, talked about it in real terms. And in fact, he says, I think it's in Matthew 11, he says, remember Lot's wife. (laughs) So Jesus believed and saw that that had been true. Maybe Lot's wife just wanted to really be what that culture was all about. And God said, okay, that's what you'll be. I think there's a lot of us that get enamored with the stuff. And God is saying, look, I can rescue you out of that. And this is the beautiful thing. I'm, I'm telling you that Lot was not, he was not a paragon of, of spiritual commitment. What he, what he suggested of his daughters to satisfy the sexual appetites of these men that were wanting to break down the door of his house to get at these angels who, thought, who they thought were men? I mean, Lot, in my mind, just doesn't really add up to being a really strong, godly man. But that's the beautiful thing about the story. God makes of us what he desires, not on the basis of how well we do for him. That's the beauty of the gospel. He's transformed all of us, nothings, nobodies, no-gooders, into the beautiful blessing of his first choice. 
And he looks at your life, even though we're at times in sin and bumbling along and failing and falling and everything else under the sun, God looks at us in the, in the eyes of, through the eyes of Jesus now, being under his covenant. And I, for one, am glad for that. Uh, Lot is called righteous, not because of his works, but because of what God had made of him. It was really God rescuing Lot based on the covenant promise with Abraham. And so God rescues us according to the covenant promise of Jesus Christ that all who are in Jesus are new creations. The old is gone, the new has come. We are no longer under condemnation or wrath. We have been set free. Our lives are free. So live this way, the scripture says. And yes, we'll fall, and yes, we'll have our foibles and mistakes, but God reminds us, look at the life of Noah, look at the life of Lot, two individuals that God made something of, not because of their works, but because of his sovereign grace and goodness in their lives. So he does to anyone who comes and places faith and trust in Jesus, who is the deliverer. I just can't get more excited about that in my life and I well actually I could be and I need to be because right now I'm pretty enthralled with that theme but this week when I stub my toe or when I say the word that I shouldn't say or I I think some dumb thought or I you know just don't live in the realm of what God wants for me I need to remember that there God is building my life and God is making me into a new creation in Jesus Christ so As surely as God has rescued his people in the past, he will get us through our trials too. Can I just show you a little grammatical thing there? The word in verse 9, if you're looking at this. Then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials. You could underline that little word there. The word from there, probably better translated through. Because sometimes we think when God rescues us from, that means we don't get touched by it. But I find that to be completely opposite. I look around this morning, I know people have got, I'm a crowd this size, we got cancer here. We got people that just lost their jobs. We got people that are tottering on losing their homes. We got, there's heartache, there's marriages that have been decimated by terrible situations. There are kids that are in rebellion there's hurt there's pain there's all this stuff and God never says I'm going to insulate you from all this you're never going to have this as a Christian that's just not in the Bible and don't trust anyone they're false teachers as they say if you have enough faith this stuff's not going to touch your life that's a lie because God allows that stuff into our lives to point us irreverently toward him to seal us in him to trust him above everything else and to become a signpost to all the other sufferers in this planet that there is someone that we can trust to get us through and so whatever you're facing today God is going to get you here's the promise God's not going to keep you from it he's going to get you through it and somebody wrote somebody told me after the main service this morning and I just pass it on to you great psalm psalm 77 it's never about getting away from but going through psalm 77 asaph saying though we were in the water you took us through the water you took us through you took us through you took us through so he takes us through so this morning i ask you the question do you know his protection you think you're everyone's just getting away with everything think again You think you're going under because of everything around you? 
Think again. God knows how to rescue the godly and to keep the ungodly for the day of judgment. And you know what? Somebody here this morning can step out of a life of eminent judgment and into a life of eternal bliss through Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's go to the Lord right now. Thank you, Lord. Lord, sometimes places in your scriptures challenge us and you don't want to give us quick, easy answers. You want us to wrestle a little bit and that's what we've been doing these last couple weeks in this, in this text and I pray that it will continue, Lord. But I thank you, Lord, that because we love your word and because we believe it comes from you, we want to pay attention to it. And so this morning, Lord, I pray the big idea would come through that you are a God that although you judge and you do, and we should not think lightly of that, you also rescue. And we should take great encouragement in knowing that while we were destined for judgment and damnation, you in your incredible mercy and grace have placed us in your son Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you will have your total and complete way in any heart that is rebellious to you this morning that needs to come back and submit to your lordship. And any one of us today, Lord, who maybe has never come to that place of inviting you to be Lord and Savior of our lives. So, Lord, have your way even now in these final moments of this service. We have a few minutes to process, Lord, so may we not be quick to turn all this off and into our day. May we sit quietly before you and reflect and make whatever choices that we need to make, commitments that we need to make, remembering these things. In Jesus' name, amen.